in this series on Romans is the winter of A.D. 57. Paul is kind of stuck in Corinth. Back in the ancient world, you didn't travel in the wintertime, especially on the Mediterranean. And, and so Paul is in Corinth, and Paul is basically caught with two things going on in his life. Number one, he's engaged in collecting money to take back to the church in Jerusalem. He hopes to have it there by Pentecost of A.D. 57. So he's collecting money. And then secondly, he's making plans to take the gospel to the west. He wants to leave after he goes to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Rome, use Rome as a basis to then go into Spain. And that's Paul's plan. Now God obviously is going to have other plans for him. But while he's there in Corinth, some people bring him news about what's going on over in Rome. Jewish Christians moving back to Rome, and you need to remember what had happened. About eight years earlier, they'd, they'd had a lot of rioting, disturbances, the historians say. Uh, in the synagogues in Italy, specifically in Rome over Jesus. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? And it had gotten so bad that Claudius, the emperor at the time, said, all right, all the Jews out of Italy. Just get out. And he had expelled all the Jews from Rome and Italy. And by the way, among the ones expelled was a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, who had teamed up with Paul when he went to Corinth earlier on his second missionary journey. He, he was a tent maker, they were tent makers, and they had become close friends. And whether word had come from them or not, Nero had come to the throne, Nero had lifted Claudius's edict at some point, the Jews are moving back, and as these Jewish Christians are moving back, they find themselves in conflict with these now Gentile-led churches. Again, picture the scene. The church had started from Jews. Gentiles had been baptized. Then the Jews had been kicked out, leaving a purely Gentile church, first ones that existed in the ancient world. Now these Jews are moving back, and as they're moving back, they're expecting to return to their leadership position that they had when they left, and the Gentiles are not so receptive to that. And so they've, they've, they've got arguments breaking out everywhere. Arguments over what you eat. Can you eat pork? Can you not eat pork? Holy days. Do you have to keep the Sabbath? Do you not have to keep the Sabbath? What's the responsibility of the Gentiles to their Jewish brethren and vice versa? And Romans 14 gives you just a little insight into the culture of the church there in Rome. Look at what Paul says. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister or why do you treat them with contempt? Contempt is an attitude where you look down upon someone as if they're an idiot, as if they're a dummy, as if they just don't have a clue. And, and, and those who do marriage counseling knows that when, when you see contempt in a relationship by one spouse toward the other, oftentimes that's an incredibly bad sign. I mean, contempt is kind of one of those attitudes that, whew, when you're around someone who's showing you contempt, it can really light you up. I know it does me. 
And Paul is hearing that going on there at Rome. And he says, listen guys, don't y'all know you're going to stand before God's judgment seat as well? And so what Paul does is he steps back in writing to try to address this issue. He steps back and he says, can I tell you what we can unite on? We may not be able to unite on what you eat or what you drink or the holy days you celebrate, but surely we can unite on the gospel. And so in this book, he's going to argue that both Jew and Gentile alike are under the condemnation of sin and are justified through the faithfulness of and faith in Jesus the Messiah. Jesus came, was faithful to God, became the atoning sacrifice that if we put our faith in, we too can be justified before God. And this verse is the one he's moving toward. Romans 3.23, one of the earliest verses I memorized as a teenager. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews as well as Gentiles. And that's the direction Paul's going to move in. Now last week we finished our lesson with Romans 1.17, one of the most important verses in the text. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? And and it has to do with faith. Faith from beginning to last. The just shall live by faith. But I want you to notice the language there. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I don't think most of us notice how he links that with verse 18. Watch verse 18 as he focuses on this this problem that the Gentiles has. And the wrath of God is being revealed as well. The righteousness of God is revealed, but also the wrath of God is revealed. And like I threw that picture up there of the microscope, one of the things that Paul's going to do is he's going to first look at the sinfulness of the Gentile world. Now, If you'd been a Jewish Christian when that letter had first started being read to the congregation, you'd been amening all the way through it. Amen, that's right. I mean, those Gentiles are guilty of that. Until you get to chapter 2, when Paul flips it. And he says, what about you Jews? You think you're any better? And then you started hearing a lot of Gentile amens. I mean, Paul's going to set up both of them to say, listen... Romans 3.23, all of you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, who God showed would be the judge of the world by raising him from the dead. Notice how he argues this as he enters into it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. I I don't like the NIV's translation here because what he's doing is making a play on words. and, And here's the NET's translation of it, and I really like its translation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against... Notice, God wants us to be godly. But what have we become? We've become ungodly. God wants us to be righteous. What have we become? We've become unrighteous. In other words, the image that God meant to create within us that reflected His glory has instead been so corrupted that it reveals just the opposite. And what happens is is that that suppresses the the truth. 
The more wicked you become, the further away from God you go, the more you begin to press, suppress, try to do away with the rules, with righteousness, with godliness, with the truth. And so Paul's going to launch into a three-pronged argument here how we have rebelled against God, beautifully argued, and so desperately needed today by all of us. Here's his first argument. He says, mankind is turned from trusting in God to trusting in themselves. That's the first mistake they made. God's revealed himself, and man says, I don't want to listen to God. Notice the language here. And, and you've got this long, long text here. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, Paul argues. Because God has made it plain. And then notice how he argues. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his very divine nature have been clearly, notice these words, plainly, clearly, it's been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. To put it as simple as I know, from the psalmist's words, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. For those of us in apologetics, we'll, we'll argue sometimes that one of the best arguments for the existence of God is what's called the cosmological argument. Put very simple, there's a creation, therefore there has to be a creator. It would be similar, the old argument used to be if you found a watch. I, I like to use if you find a smartphone. You know, if you're walking out in the woods and you look down and here's a smartphone, you don't pick it up and go, huh, that's an interesting creation of nature. You know, all of us would recognize immediately, whoa, how lucky a day it is, I found a smartphone. You know, I mean, the argument from all through Scripture is that when you look at what's created, there are certain things about the Creator you can absolutely know. Notice up here, His eternal power. I mean, if we, if we can't understand that when we have seen what we've seen the last few weeks, hurricanes, fires, I mean, the giant sequoias out in, in California right now are under threat because uh, of the fires that's taking place. I mean, we, we just we can throw as many firefighters as we want at it and seem not to be able to get a handle on these fires. The flooding that takes place. I mean, when you think of all the billions of dollars we spend to make sure that all these heavy rains don't affect us and still they have an effect upon us. We build an infrastructure of power and God comes along and sweeps it away and a million people go into darkness overnight. God's power is evident. His divine nature, Paul says, they're all clearly seen and we really don't have an excuse. So right off the bat, God says, listen, are you going to trust me or trust yourselves? And look at what they did. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave him thanks, and then look what happened to us. All of these phrases, their thinking became futile, worthless, not arriving at the conclusion it should. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They're no longer enlightened as when they had a relationship with God. They're now dark. And then look at the last one, they became fools. And, and, and it's interesting the language that is used here. They became fools. 
again, one of the things Paul's going to do in, in Romans 1 is he's going to keep going back to creation. And what is so interesting here is that if you go back to Genesis 3, to creation, the first temptation, Adam and Eve eating forbidden fruit, look at the reason for doing it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, but look at this last one, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, how do you gain wisdom? You trust in God. But the serpent came along and says, no, God's trying to prevent you from being like him. And if you'll eat this fruit, you'll be like him. You'll gain wisdom. And Eve said, yeah, that's what I want. Adam said, yes, that's what I want. And in so doing, they became fools. And how many times do we make foolish decisions? Again, because we don't trust God. And so Paul says, so you know what they did? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Instead of worshiping God, they decided we'll worship something else. We'll worship human beings or birds or animals or reptiles or wealth or prestige or power. I mean, we can plug in our own idols in the exact same place. And because of this, Paul says, God gave them over. Three times he's going to say this in the text. God gave them over. You remember when your parents gave you over? I think all of us, if we went back, could remember times where we went to mom and dad. Oh, mom, dad, I really want that job. Oh, mom, dad, I really want that car. Oh, mom and dad, I really want to go on that trip. And we're sitting here, and mom and dad knows better. But we just finally, out of just frustration, they look at us and said, all right, if that's what you want, go for it. But you're not going to like what you get. My mom used to put it this way to me. She'd say, Les, you're going to pay for your raisin, boy. And, and, of course, years later, I looked at mom and I said, I don't mind paying for mine. It's my brothers and sisters I'm paying for, too, that bother me. Why am I paying for everybody else's raising? You know, you're going to pay for your raising. You, you think you know what you're doing. And so God gave us over. Psalm 81:12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. I mean, that's what you want? I'm going to give it to you. Stephen would argue this in Acts 7. But God turned away from them and said, You want to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars? Then go for it. See how the sun responds when you're in trouble. See how the moon blesses you. See how the stars answer your prayers. I mean, basically, it's what God does to us. When we in stubbornness keep saying, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I want to do, this is the direction I'm going, and God says, go for it. And he gives us over. And what's interesting for Paul is going back to creation, going back to Genesis. Again, he keeps doing that over and over again. He says, one of the things where this shows up is in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. One of the things you find right off the bat is that human relationships, including the sexual relationship, was one of the first casualties of the fall. I mean, open your Bibles, Genesis 3. Look at what happened the moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Genesis 2 gives us God's perfect design. Okay, God created human relationships. 
And he says, here's the way they should function. Man leaves his father and mother, unites to his wife, they become one flesh. And then notice the language. Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. There was no, no shame in the world yet. And what's fascinating is that immediately following this, shame enters the world. Now, why did God create us the way he did? You know, why male and female? Why did he create marriage? And for those of us who do premarital counseling and weddings, one of the things we do is we talk about how that God's design was that through marriage we get a glimpse, a deeper glimpse of who God is. Love, for instance. I mean, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Well, how do we experience love? Well, the deepest intimate love is that of the marriage relationship. I mean, there's other loves. There's love of parents for kids, kids for parents. I mean, I get that. But the most intimate is that marriage relationship. And so we learn something of the nature of God in marriage. Second is unity. That's why this oneness becomes so important to God. I mean, we experience what the God has, has experienced throughout all eternity. Unity. At least we're supposed to. And then we also involve, get involved in creation. What we call procreation. The ability to create ourselves, children. And those of us who have children know what that's like to sit there and think, with God's help, somehow we created this precious child. And so this is why God created marriage. But we come along and we corrupt it in numerous ways. We say instead of God being the reason for making it, we're the reason. And so marriage is more about my happiness than it is about my holiness. I wish someone had sat down with me when I was a teenager. And I wish they had taught me that the whole purpose of what God has created is to draw you as well as your spouse closer to God. Because let's be honest, for a lot of us, it, it, it drove us away from God instead of drawing us to God. And that's because we look for the wrong reason for why, why God created it. So notice what happens to Eve and Adam both, right off the bat. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. Why was shame, nakedness, the first response in the fall? And again, because sin corrupts the very most intimate relationships we have in the world, right off the bat. And so Paul goes on and he says, listen, the end result is, is that you begin to leave the truth and you begin to believe a lie. And, and that becomes the second casualty. I mean, first is faith in God. Second is the truth of God. Notice, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things instead of the creator. I mean, think about the Israelites. 
They come up out of Egypt. They see everything that God does. God, I mean, he brings the plagues on Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. I mean, he has manifested himself in so many different ways. And when they get to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain. And what do the Israelites do? They turn to Aaron and said, you make us a god. And Aaron gives in to them and creates a golden calf. And look at what the text says. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is your God, this calf right here. That's the power that parted the Red Sea. That's the power that killed the firstborn of all of uh, uh, Egypt. And of course, we look at that and go, how in the world could they believe that? Same way I've often believed the lies of Satan. I mean, it's not hard. And then what follows next is so fascinating. So the next day, the people rose up early, sacrificed, offered fellowship offerings, sat down to eat and drink, and then got up to indulge in revelry. I like the way the Living Bible puts this. He says, afterwards, they sat down to feast and drink at a wild party, followed by sexual immorality. Again, somehow in the fall, that which God created to be so precious, relationships, intimacy, gets the most corrupted. Romans 1, 26 and 27, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so why sexual immorality? Why does Paul, again, focus on that? And the answer is the same reason Jesus did when, when he was asked about divorce. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, they come to Jesus and they said, Can a man divorce his wife for any or every reason? In other words, if I get tired of June because she burns the biscuits, which, by the way, is one of the questions asked the rabbis, and their answer was, get rid of her. She burns the bread, get someone who doesn't burn the bread. And boy, can you imagine what the courts would look like if every time we got frustrated at our spouse for some reason, hey, we're in the court, we're getting rid of them, we're finding someone who won't frustrate us. Frustrate us. Well, good luck on that one, right? And so Jesus, when asked about that, he says, haven't you read? And then takes them right back to Genesis chapter 2. But I want you to notice how he ends it. In verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's Genesis 2. And then Jesus adds this. Therefore, what God has joined together. I tell couples when I perform weddings, listen, I'll pronounce you a husband and wife. God's the one who makes you married. I can't join you the way God does. I can do it legally. I can't do it emotionally and spiritually and physically and all those aspects that God gets involved in. And Jesus says, go back to the beginning. And of course, the end result is we just mess it up. I mean, when I think about all the ways we've rebelled against God, it begins with this one, lust. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount on, on Sunday mornings in here. We're in chapter 6 now. But back in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus says, by the way, don't start with adultery. If you don't understand the roots of adultery, you go back to lust. 
I mean, look at those who lust for other men's wives, other wives' husbands. Look for those who lust for things that they don't have, and you'll understand the beginning of all sexual sin. And boy, when Jesus took it back to lust, he pretty well said, better examine your own heart. Divorce for any and every cause. That's why Jesus said no. No, that's not the way it works. Living together? This is one in recent years that has just become so pronounced in American culture. Used to, it was a problem among the young and unmarried. Now it's a problem among the old and unmarried. I mean, it's a problem of where we just think, you know what? God wants me to experience love, and so whether I'm in a committed relationship or not really doesn't matter. And God the whole time says, that's exactly why it matters. Intimacy should only be experienced in the most committed of relationship, which is the covenant of marriage itself. And so oftentimes we take God's plan and we turn that plan upside down. And of course the problem is today is that so many people don't even know what the word fornication means. But God looks at us when we say, I'm not going to do it God your way, I'm going to do it my way. And God says, yeah, that's the problem. And then... Adultery? We see today polygamy, polymory. Polyamory is, is a new relationship that, boy, I tell you, if you go online and you just type it up, you shake your head and go, really? People are getting into this? And it's a relationship where people basically say, you know what? I want to be in a relationship with other men and women. It can be two, three, four, five, six, seven. How many agree to be in a relationship of where I can be with anyone I want to be with because as long as there's love... It doesn't matter. And God says, yes, it does. It manifests itself, as Paul said here, in homosexuality. I mean, it just manifests itself in so many different ways, which leads then to the last one, where we basically, at some point in time, God says, all right, you've turned from a godly mind to a depraved mind. Yeah. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God says, if you don't want to think about God, I'm going to let your mind think about other things. And look at all the different translations of this word depraved. Base, worthless, foolish, immoral, perverse. I mean, you're going to do things that you ought not to do. Filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. And then, if, if you're among those who like to kind of put sins in a hierarchy... Of where, whew, I may sin, but at least I don't do this sin. Would you notice the ones that Paul lists in this, in this particular list? I mean, he lists some bad ones. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. Surely gossip doesn't belong among the others. Uh, yes, it does. Slanders, God-haters, absolutely, if you hate God, boy, that's horrible. Insolent and arrogant. And boastful? You see, when I read those words all at once, my toes get sore. Because how many times have I slipped off into those characteristics? They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Wow. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Again, 
in Greek, this is all poetic in nature. It's got a lot of rhyme to it. Here's the way the Passion translates and puts it. They are senseless, faithless, ruthless, heartless, completely merciless. So what do we do? I mean, Paul ends with this, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. And you read it, and you just... It's the same thing that happens to me every morning. I make a decision in the morning that I keep kicking myself because I do it. I get up in the morning, and one of the first things I do is bring up the news on my phone. I want to see what happened overnight. Can I tell you that's not a good way to start your day? Because all the news is filled with is all the horrible things that's happening in the world. It's like reading this list we just got through with. This happened up in Chicago. This happened in downtown Nashville. This happened down in Texas. This happened out in California. The list just goes on and on all around the world. So what do we do? And what Paul's going to argue later on in this beautiful book, is he says, you've got to go back and address your mind. He says, you've got to address the way you think. Your thinking's become darkened. You've got to enlighten it. And notice, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by allowing God to renew that mind. And that's what I love about the reverse process. He says, how do you return to God? You go back to trusting him. You go back to saying, God, I'm tired of the way the world has led me. I don't want to be involved in all of this anymore. And so, God, I'm just going to put my trust in you and in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. And God says, that's where you start. And then you begin believing the truth that's found in the gospel. The truth that through Jesus Christ, God can take anyone. No, no, no matter where they are in the world, God can lift you up. And by the way, he does it through the power of the gospel in our response to it. That's why over in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when the people said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The response of Peter is, repent. Make a decision to change. Put your trust back in God. Repent, and then be baptized, be immersed, make a commitment. By the way, baptism is that marriage commitment, that spiritual marriage commitment we make to Jesus Christ. And the end result is our sins are washed away, remitted, forgiven, and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's that gift that makes all the difference in the world. You see, it's the awareness of the Spirit's presence in our life. Of the Spirit's work in our minds. Of the Spirit's transformation of our thinking. That helps us become what God created us to be. Which leads us to the third thing. We turn from a depraved mind to that Spirit-renewed mind. And let me just tell you. Getting up in the morning and asking God to direct your day instead of reacting to whatever is going on in the world is what turns us from being people who get caught up in the mess and the mire and the mud of the world and instead are brought up into the presence of God. I don't know why Sundays are different. But every Lord's Day begins in my mind as I wake up, as the alarm goes off. This is the day the Lord has made. 
I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And this is the day that the Lord has made. And I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know if you read Romans chapter 1 and you're like, whew, I've been guilty of a lot of that. Guess what? I have too. And that's why I'm so thankful for the grace of God. Faith in Jesus Christ. The gift of God's Holy Spirit that makes it all worthwhile because we can be renewed. And if you haven't, why don't be renewed today as together we stand and sing?